Again, it's so wonderful to be here. So good to see so many familiar faces, friendly faces, faces that we treasure, uh, and new faces as well. It's such a great encouragement to see that the work of the Lord has been bearing fruit um, here in our absence. Um, our kids are also, they've just been hanging out to come back to Wild Street ever since we began our time in Melbourne with stage four lockdown. That wasn't fun. Kids have just been hanging out to be here. So it's just an absolute delight. And a delight to be opening God's word with you today. Please keep it open to Ephesians 2. We're just going to walk, walk slowly through that wonderful passage. Um, I just want to start, though, um, if, with a question. If you've ever wondered why before and after stories seem to be so popular in our society... Uh, weight loss programs, all right, we all know weight loss programs, they, they cash in on before and after stories. If ever you're in doubt as to whether or not before and after stories are particularly popular, you just need to log on to the internet and check out some weight loss program websites, which I did this week. I started at the Weight Watchers webpage, bam, straight away, six before and after stories front and centre. Jenny Craig, next stop. Uh, Jenny Craig website has Brooke, 37... No, no, I don't know how old she is. She lost 37 kilograms and says, if I could describe Jenny Craig in one word, it would be life-changing. Right? There's a before and after story that gets you in. My personal favourite, though, is the Manshake website, which hits you with a photo montage of all sorts of before and after stories of heavily tattooed blokes with the promise lose the beer sorry lose the beer gut without losing all the beers <laughs> what a promise i think we love a good before and after story because we love seeing solutions to our big problems obesity is a big problem but obviously it's not the only problem that humanity faces that we face Neither are weight loss stories the only before and after stories. Romantic movies, right? They're, they're often pretty much before and after stories. The guy before is sad and lonely, meets the girl, all the dreams come true, he's happy. Just about every self-improvement program comes with a before and after story. These stories offer an example of some big problem being solved. I think that's why they're so popular. But what about our biggest problems, right? What about humanity's ultimate problems, the biggest ones? Who's solving them? Well, typically, that's where religions come in. Uh, Buddhism says attachment is our biggest problem. We need enlightenment. Islam says disobedience is our biggest problem. We need submission to the will of Allah. In other words, all the major religions of the world offer before and after stories of humanity. Now, they all come with a promise to meet us at our deepest need. Well, today's passage is the Bible's before and after story of humanity. And it's a story that these churches that the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to really needed to hear. You remember last week, Acts 19, the passage in the Bible that describes the context, the historical context for this letter, shows Paul, the author of this letter, in a very powerful ministry. He's popular, he's powerful, healing, exercising demons. 
But years later, when he's writing this letter, things are very different. He's not writing from a position of power. He's writing from prison. And there's new leaders in the churches in Ephesus that he planted trying to discredit him because of that fact. Look at him. He's in jail. How can his message be any good? Well, Ephesians 1 to 2, the section we're in now, is Paul's attempt to silence those new influential leaders and correct what they've done in damage to the message. And he does so by showing how God's power is seen, remember Kurt's point from last week, when we trust what is unseen. He's making the same point about God's power here. It's seen particularly when we trust the unseen glory of God's before and after story of humanity. Doing that is going to keep the Ephesian Christians from losing heart, which is his big aim. He says it in chapter 3, verse 13. And it's going to do the same for us. So what is God's before and after story of humanity? Well, it starts with a description of our deepest problem. Have a look at our passage, Ephesians chapter 2, starting verse 1. The description of our condition. Humanity is, verse 1, dead. Verse 2, enslaved. Verse 3, condemned. Children of wrath. It's pretty bleak, right? Dead, enslaved, condemned. It's about as bleak as it gets, actually. The word sin in verse 1 here, it means missing the mark. It's actually a term used for hunting, missing the mark. Walking, verse 2, is how Paul consistently describes our lives, their direction and purpose. God's saying, in this little passage, the lives and purposes of humanity fundamentally miss the mark. What mark? God's mark. God's design. I think for the most part, we're, we're kind of blind to the extent of that in our own lives and the lives of those around us. But at times, I think we do actually see it. I'll use an example of how we treat our environment. A 2018 United Nations report estimated that a third of the world's fish stocks are overfished and that most of that is surplus that we don't need. That means a third of the world's fish belong to species heading for extinction. That's missing the mark in caring for our environment. But the problem's not just global, it's personal. We miss the mark in our relationships. Rather than love people, as God's designed us to do, we use them for our own advantage. And most importantly, which is what this passage is primarily about, we miss the mark when it comes to our relationship with God. Most of the time, most of us live as if he didn't even exist. That's the big sin that Ephesians 2.1 is talking about. And the result, the Bible says, is, is death, spiritual death. We don't look dead, but the Bible says we are. Our direction and purpose don't just miss God's design, they miss God. And like our human relationships, 
that leaves us isolated. And isolation from the source of life, God, means death. A cut flower. These are Nikki's favourite flowers. Happy Mother's Day, Nikki. A cut flower blooms for a week or so, but I'm sorry to say, Nikki, it dies pretty soon after. It looks alive, but it's not. That's us, according to the Bible. God's before and after story starts by saying we are firstly dead. Secondly, it says we're enslaved. Followers of verse 2, have a look there, the ruler of the air. We are sons of disobedience, verse 2. Slaves to our bodily passions and desires, verse 3. Logic and things that are true. But it doesn't take long to see that that's not really true of how we actually behave. Binge drinking, binge eating, binge anything. These aren't rational approaches to life. In fact, so much of what we do is driven by passion and desire, not rational thinking. We do what we want and justify it later. Now, passions aren't bad. They're just misdirected. That's what the Bible's saying. They're directed at the wrong things, things that enslave us. That's the problem being described in Ephesians chapter 2. And again, I think we do all kind of get this, perhaps without realising it. Um, For example, when we get angry, really angry, we talk about losing it, right? Um, I think by which we mean giving control over to our desires. I remember driving along the Grand Parade at Brighton a long time ago. Um, I was in heavy traffic heading home and suddenly someone cuts me off. Not an uncommon thing in Sydney traffic. But this particular day, I just completely, I completely lost it. I was on the horn for a long, long time, screaming at this guy. When I cooled down, I was like, who was that? What was that? I was surprised at how angry it made me. But as I think about it, reflect on it, I think I know why. It wasn't about safety. It wasn't about this guy crossing a law that I was, you know, righteously trying to correct in him. I actually was concerned in that moment most significantly by the way that my status was threatened. (laughs) Sounds silly, but I felt disrespected by this guy. Like my presence on the road meant nothing to him. I lost it because my desire for respect was frustrated. I didn't honk to correct a wrong. I honked to publicly shame him, right? To get back at him. When our desires for status or control or whatever it is for you get frustrated, we lose it. That's that's an enslavement moment. That's what the Bible's talking about here. But in much greater magnitude. And it's missing God's mark. And Ephesians 2, 1 to 3 says that our walk, our direction, our passion, our lives, our basic nature, the desires of our hearts are naturally opposed to God. And he's not happy with that. And he's got a right to. He made us after all. That leads to the final description of our big problem. We're dead, enslaved, and have a look at verse 3. By nature, children of wrath, God's wrath. We're naturally opposed to God, 
And he's angry about that. He doesn't like that. He knows the damage it causes to ourselves, as well as the um, as the well as well as uh, the way it shames his purposes. And notice that this isn't some groups of people. This is all people. Verse three. Paul goes from addressing you. He's talking particularly to the Gentile Christians there. He goes from saying you to we in verse three. He's talking about Jewish and Gentile Christians then. And that's really significant, that language. Because that was the big division in the Ephesian churches. That's what these new leaders were kind of exacerbating. They were accusing the non-Jewish group of being subpar Christians. Accusing them of eating the wrong food, working on the wrong days, not following the Jewish law as they interpreted it. All of that, however, Paul says, is completely beside the point. That's not their problem. That's not the big problem with humanity. The big problem is that all of humanity, Jew and non-Jew alike, are dead, enslaved, children of God's wrath, condemned. God's before and after story starts with that description. That's the before So what's he after? Well, that brings us to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. The after story is summarized in the first two words of verse 4. But God, we're spiritually dead. Verse 5, have a look at it. (laughs) Beautiful words. But God gives us resurrection, makes us alive with Christ. We're slaves, verse 6. But God gives us freedom. We're condemned, verse 5 again, but God saves us. Every need we have, God meets. Every problem, God doesn't fix our biggest problems because of anything deserving in us. He does it because of what's in him. That's the point, like triple, quadruple underlined, In verse 4 to 8 of chapter 2. We're saved. Why? Because of his mercy. His love. His grace. His kindness. Those words are used six times in one sentence in verses 4 to 7. And in case we've missed the point. The point is repeated again in verse 8. By grace you have been saved. Not your own doing, a gift. This is what makes Christianity's before and after story so different to every other religions and every other self-help books. Every other religion describes what we must do to connect with God. Buddhism's noble eightfold path, Islam's five pillars, they're all about our efforts to connect with God. The promise of the before and after story depends on your work, your discipline. But Christianity describes what God, God, has done for us. What God has done. Not what he will do or might do. He made us, saved us, raised us. The biggest problems of humanity, in other words were solved in something that God has done. What was that thing? 
the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. In other words, Jesus became our before so that we could share his. Jesus died our death. Jesus gave himself to the slave masters that we live under so often. Jesus became the child of wrath on the cross. But then rose with a life that we can share, a life that he gives. A life we can only receive by faith. Verse 8. And faith isn't something we give God that achieves something. It's the, it's the open hand that receives what we could never achieve. That's what faith is. And you might be ready. You might be ready to receive God's new life for the first time today. Please, can I just encourage you not to wait? <laughs> Pray with a Christian friend. Live in God's after story by walking with Jesus. Or at least ask a Christian friend why they continue their walk. Jesus became our before so that we could share his after. But what does that mean for those of us already walking with Jesus? Well, that brings us to verse 9 and 10. And to, the, to a little wordplay, actually, in verse 9 and 10. Verse 9, we're not the ones working towards God. That point's been made a lot. Verse 10 tells us we are the work, God's work. More specifically, we, the church, are God's work. Remember, as Julian has already reminded us, that Paul is writing to churches, not just a random bunch of individuals who happen to pick up a book. Verse 10, for we, the church, are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you ever wonder what on earth God is doing right now? Well, here's the answer. He's crafting a new humanity free from the problems of the old in the church. <laughs> That's what we do week to week is participate in that new creation, new humanity work of our heavenly father. In other words, God is working out his before and after story in the church. Church isn't a club. It's not an activity. It's God's after story. We are God's workmanship, created for good works. Now, what those works are specifically is the subject of Ephesians 4. That's for a later, way, a later week. It's a description of church being a participation in this new humanity. But I just want to finish on the question, really, is that how church appears to you? <laughs> is that how church appears to you? Or is church more about rosters and feelings of guilt that you're late again. <laughs> so it can be hard to believe that church, this place, this people, is God's restoration project in action. Um, especially when a church appears to be in a bit of a mess, really. Media reports show scandal after scandal, and our personal experiences can be messy. How do we live out God's after story when the church appears so messy? That's the question we're going to finish on. 
And I think there's three things in the truths of this passage that we can take, hopefully, that will encourage you today to do just that. Firstly, we can remember that the church is God's workmanship. It's his job to bring this messy collection of people to final perfection in Christ. And God won't fail because its success is based on the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We are God's workmanship. He's at work in and through us. I used to love going down to my dad's uh, workshop growing up. I remember working with him on an old outboard motor. It was 50 years old and didn't work. But all my friends had tinnies, little boats, and I wanted one. But we didn't have much money. So dad thought, well, we could, we could try and fix one into existence. So that was the plan. Um, and I just, I just loved tinkering away on this outboard motor with my dad. I had no idea what he was doing, what I was doing, sorry. But dad let me in. All right? He gave me a spanner, WD-40, which seemed to fix everything, and told me what to do. Told me some little things that I could actually do. I never actually felt closer, I think, to my dad than those moments working with him. That's God. I don't know what picture you have of God. But, but that's God. God shares the dignity of work, his work, with us, in us, through us. And like my little story, he's the one working. I didn't, I, we finally did get that motor working. It was awesome. Um, I didn't get it working. It was my dad. That's God. God is the one at work in and through us. First thing. Secondly, we're a work in progress. I think it's easy to feel discouraged when we think we should be somewhere where we're not. Where we think the church should be something that it is, that it is not showing itself to be. But when we understand all of us as a work in progress that God is doing, I think it sets us on the right track. Causes us to pray. Remember that we're, we're, that we're a work in progress, number two. And thirdly, remember that God's power is seen when we trust in what is unseen, and particularly when we trust in God's after story, that it is our story. All from God's abundant mercy, love, grace, and kindness. We're God's workmanship. We're a work in progress, and God's unseen story is our real story. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we pray that these truths that you have revealed so wonderfully, so beautifully to us in Ephesians chapter 2 would be truths that we take to heart this week. In Jesus' name, amen.